In your way back to your seats, I invite you to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. We are in John, chapter 20 this morning. We've been blessed to be journeying through the Gospel of John, as you know, for quite some time. We took a brief break to go into the letters of John, but we returned into the Gospel right around the Easter season so that we could focus on the narratives that were particularly concerned with Jesus and his journey to the cross. And so uh, this Sunday we are in John chapter 20, rightfully so, the story of the resurrection. And so we're going to read the whole chapter. So I believe it, uh, I don't know if it's on the screens or not, but you have a Bible in the pew in front of you as well. If you don't have one with you, you're welcome to turn there again. John chapter 20. And it says this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and she saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And the angel said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. But Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Verse 19, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the religious leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve disciples, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hands and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. 
And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus replied, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God, it stands forever. Amen. Uh, many of you know, if Lake Osborne is your church home and you know me well by now, that I am um, an obsessed, and you could also say pitiable, uh, Miami Marlins fan. All right? uh, I've been loyal since the beginning. They were the Florida Marlins, and then the Miami Marlins. They had, you know, now they have a new logo, a new owner. Um, I've been there through thick and thin. Okay, I love the Marlins, love baseball, you know that about me, and we are just obsessed. And again, pitiable because the Marlins are not that great, all right, particularly this year. Uh, Christ is risen, that is a miracle. Well, there was also a miracle last night, and the Marlins won back-to-back games, all right? Um, a little bit less of a miracle, admittedly, but still. Okay, so I'm one of those obsessed and just pitiable Marlins fans. Well, a couple of years ago, I had the privilege to actually buy some season tickets, okay? Now, don't, don't get me wrong. It's not like this expensive package, right? It's a 10-game package, which is, you know, like 1 16th of the season. And I bought it with some friends, and we split the tickets. And, you know, it's a good way to go down with the family and, and have some fun. But what I like about this is that as a season ticket holder, even if I only have 10 games, okay, I'm not the guy, you know, in the skybox or behind home plate, you know, our, 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 our packages, you know, ticket packages are, are much uh, different in cost, right? But if you're even a ticket holder at all, a 10-game ticket holder, you're part of what they call the Marlins family, all right? The Marlins family, and this is a great reminder that, again, the spectrum is wide, okay? Ten tickets, you know, 82 home tickets, you're still a part of the Marlins family. And that just means, you know, you get a couple emails throughout the year and a bumper sticker. Not that big a deal, right? But Marlins family, all right? Well, I bring that up because in this text, and it's a long text, you know, chapter 20, it's a long, intricate chapter, but in this chapter, we see three types of people. Three types of people that are all, though, a part of the family of God that Christ is building in his resurrection. That, again, if the Marlins family includes, you know, 10-game ticket holders and 50-game uh, ticket holders and 82-home game ticket holders, well, here in the text, we see three groups of people that are all a little bit different but all a part of the family of God that Christ is building in his glorious resurrection. And the three types of people we see here is we see there are runners, there are weepers, and there are doubters. Again, in the family of God, even here this morning, there are weepers, there are runners, and there are doubters. In the first 10 verses, if you noticed, again, John 20, we were introduced to Mary Magdalene. And Mary Magdalene, from the other Gospels, as you know, was a woman who was formerly demon-possessed, had this just tough history, tough past, but was healed by Jesus. Well, you see her now uh, running to the tomb, the early dawn of Sunday morning. She visits the tomb, but she's shocked to see the stone has been moved and the body is gone. 
And again, not knowing how to process it, not knowing what to make of it, assuming that this is bad news, she does something here that we see. She's that first group of people. She runs. She runs as fast as she can away from the tomb to the disciples to get a second opinion. And if you notice, when the disciples hear the news from her, Simon Peter and John and the others, they put on their, you know, jogging sandals and they start running as well. And they run from Mary now to the tomb. They have to see it for themselves. And I've always loved, and you've heard me point it out before, I've always loved verse 4 of chapter 20, where John, the gospel writer, has to tell you the order in which the disciples finished, right? If this is a foot race to the tomb, John wants to make sure you know who won, okay? He's very competitive, apparently. Look in verse 4. Both disciples were running, but the other disciple, which is John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first, all right? Just so you know, all right? God came down, God resurrected Jesus Christ, right? But still, make sure you know, okay, that John finished first. It seems like such a trivial detail, and yet it, it shows that this is a historical, historical account. But in, anyways, they run to the tomb together. And again, you see Peter, now look like in, in verse 8, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. Peter had gone in first, verse 6, following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Again, they, they run to the tomb and they find it empty. And they're not sure yet what to make of this. They're not quite sure what to make of this, but they know somehow deep down God is doing something remarkable. You see, there may have been many impulses that initially caused them to run. Fear that Christ's body had been stolen. Uh, fear that his body had been desecrated by the authorities. That something you know, nefarious was about. But underneath, I believe, underneath those initial impulses, there was this greater impulse that propelled the disciples to run that morning to the tomb. And that greater impulse was this idea that what if God was actually up to something? What if God was actually up to something great? What if there was actually life beyond the grave? What if there was actually more to life than just what our eyes can see, just the, the surroundings that we see in front of us? What if there was more to life than just this idea of, of cold fate? You see, that was the greater impulse that propelled the disciples that morning to run. And it's the same question we have to ask ourselves this morning. What if there is more to life than just what we see around us? More to life than our careers, uh, more to life than our family history, more to life than the scenario in which we, we find ourselves, that yes, the world is broken, that yes, life is is hard, but above it all, what if there was a God who was actually up to something? There was actually a God who was sovereign over the affairs of our lives, even the difficult parts. And he was working out a salvation. He was working out this idea that death itself could be conquered. You see, this is what was ringing in the disciples' mind as they ran that morning to the tomb. 
They began to believe that God was up to something in history through the person of Christ Jesus. That sad things really do come untrue. That there really was a prince who had come to rescue the princess. There was a knight who had come to rescue the damsel in distress. That what they had seen with their eyes, again, think of the disciples' testimony. They had seen Christ heal the brokenhearted, heal the diseased and the afflicted. They had even seen a few chapters prior him raise a man named Lazarus from the dead. And you see, they began to believe as they ran that these weren't just one-off occurrences. These weren't just random things that had happened one time, but rather they were the new, the new order. They were the new pattern that God was actively turning back the curse upon creation, turning back the curse upon humanity and making all things new, conquering even death itself. That was why in Galatians, when we had our time of confession a moment ago, Paul in Galatians says, at the right time, God sent forth his son. At the right time, again, the alarm clock of history went off and God began turning back the curse and renewing things to their proper order even overcoming death itself. And so that's why the disciples ran. They ran through doubt. They ran through discouragement. They ran through the circumstances around them. And they wanted to see for themselves if this really could be true. And it's the same question for all of us this morning. Why are you running? Why are you running? Or better yet, what are you running to in your life? What relationship are you running to, hoping that it will finally satisfy you or finally save you? What career or self-help project or philosophy, what amount of money do you need in your bank account? What, you know, what number are you running to to finally be happy, to finally be satisfied, to finally believe uh, that, that the world will be set right. You see, there's a thousand things that we can run to in this earthly life, and many of those things aren't bad things. But the truth is that we're called to run to one thing this morning, one thing for our ultimate hope, one thing for our ultimate satisfaction, one thing that will never ultimately disappoint us because it will even conquer the grave itself, and that's the empty tomb of Christ Jesus. That alone is where satisfaction and hope and meaning and life, abundant life, can be found. And so again, whatever it is you're running to this morning, place your hopes here instead. Run like the disciples to the empty tomb of Jesus instead. And so we see in verses 11 through 18 that Mary did this. She then herself runs back to the tomb and, and, and finding it empty, as we see, she thought it was bad news. She thought the body of Christ had been stolen by, by grave robbers, that surely the authorities had, had stolen it or something had occurred. And so you see what's happening here is that Mary is running. She's running uh, in hope, but her hope, it seems, quickly turns to despair. And she begins to weep. And so Mary was a runner, and now here she is a weeper. She is someone who's mourning in seeming despair. You see, she had hopes and she had all these dreams and expectations, but now she feels probably a little bit silly. Because she comes to the tomb and she thinks to herself, a dead man rising again? Come on. A crucified Messiah? I mean, Mary, take the hint. 
How much more dead could he become? He was beaten within an inch of his life. He was nailed to a cross. He was laid into, into a tomb. I mean, Mary, what did you expect? What did you expect? And you wonder if in that moment she actually felt a little bit silly. That she's there at the empty tomb. She, she runs back to the empty tomb. She's looking around. And then she starts to feel a little bit hot in the face. Starts to blush a little bit. Starts to feel embarrassed. Go, Come on. I mean, Mary, aren't you, aren't you getting a little old for fairy tales? Uh, I mean, come on. You wonder if she starts looking over her shoulder and, and wondering now if anybody's there to see her. Oh, man. Come on, Mary. You see, she ran in hope to find something, and it was disappointed. Disappointed. And again, that might be some of us today, that we run to church maybe this morning for the first time in a while, run to church hoping to find something, only to conclude, nah, God can't be there. God can't be there. The church is full of imperfect people. It's full of scandal, and you know, the church is often a bad witness. Nah, God can't be there. I knew this whole thing was too good to be true. That's some of us this morning. We run to God, we run to the church, only to be let down, only to find ourselves weeping in despair. Or perhaps it's not the church, not, not maybe God himself, but life. The surroundings of life, the devastation of life, the wars and the terror and the corruption and the, and the bad news constantly on TV and we flip on the nightly news and we think to ourselves, man, surely God can't be here. Or if he is here in our world, he doesn't care. Because look at the surroundings. Look at what's around us. And so just like Mary, we run, we run hopefully even, only to always be let down by something. God himself, we think, the church, the world, and we end up just like Mary, weeping, and, and we feel like we are in despair. But again, that's where the empty tomb is instructive for us this morning. And we must see the empty tomb clearly for what it is. You see, Mary at first thinks that it's a sign of bad news. That Christ's body has been stolen, that this whole thing was a sham, that what he said couldn't possibly be true, that he was a failed Messiah. But actually, it's the exact opposite. Notice instead in verse 12, when Mary comes to the empty tomb, what does she see? She sees two angels in white. And it says, sitting where the body of Christ had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, almost rhetorically, Mary, why are you weeping? If you understood the empty tomb for what it is, why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? You see, Mary didn't realize it, but she'd actually seen the best news possible. That God, as he always does, takes something that appears to be bad and works it for good. He takes what man intended for evil, the death of Jesus, and he uses it for good. Because what Mary saw before her, two angels in white sitting at the head and the feet of where Christ's body had been laid, what Mary saw there was the greatest fulfillment of God's promises in the history of the world. Because what Mary saw there was actually a picture of what the, what the Bible calls the mercy seat of God. That if you go all the way back in your Bibles to the Old Testament, you know that the nation of Israel made sacrifices to God on the Ark of the Covenant. 
And the Ark of the Covenant was that, that great you know, chest okay, that had on top of it this gold altar. And on the gold altar, there was an angel on each side that would look down, literally, on the sacrifice that was offered to atone for sin. And now you fast forward here to the New Testament, you fast forward to the Gospels, and what does Mary see? She sees the real, perfect, ultimate mercy seat of God that, that the, the previous mercy seat pointed forward to. And you have there, again, the altar, which was the tomb, the two angels sitting there looking down upon the sacrifice that God himself had made for his people, that he had sacrificed the perfect lamb, a lamb without blemish and spot. He had sacrificed Christ Jesus himself for you and for me. And that his sacrifice was accepted before God, that all of our sins can be forgiven, that we now can be brought back into the family of God. You see, that's what Mary saw. That's what God was telling her that day, that yes, the world is broken, that yes, the world is a place where we are right to weep at times. We are right to mourn. We are actually even right to feel despair sometimes. This world is broken. This world is hard. Life is difficult. But God in Christ Jesus was busy making things new, making things right. And he was busy ultimately atoning for the human sin that has broken our world and corrupted our world and made it what it is. You see, Mary there saw this glorious, glorious picture there in the empty tomb. She saw the mercy seat of God. And she hears actually Christ himself. I love that other detail where she basically, Mary thinks Christ is like the landscaper. Did you notice that? If you look uh, in verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary, Mary. She recognizes that voice. She recognizes that the, the hope that she had wasn't false hope. The hope that she had wasn't disappointed, but it was realized here in the resurrected glory of Christ Jesus. And that's ours as well. That whatever hopes we bring, whatever expectations we bring, let the empty tomb uh, inform them this morning that God is alive, God is present, God is actively busy redeeming this broken world. And though we weep, that this is the reason why he can and will wipe every tear from our eyes. Because God is making all things new. But then thirdly, and finally, if all of this sounds you know, too good to be true, there's one other person we meet in this story. We've seen runners, we've seen weepers, and then finally, we also meet a doubter. We meet, you know, uh, the doubter of doubters, Thomas. How would you like to have his name, right? Thomas the doubter. That was how he was remembered throughout history. But if we're honest, Thomas is actually a lot more like us than we sometimes admit. We all have doubts. We all have questions. We all have anxieties and, and things that we want clearly laid out for us. Well, Thomas here is that example. Look in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails 
and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand to his side, I will never believe. You see, Thomas wasn't there when the first sighting happened. And you can imagine, he hears the stories. You know, in the, over those few days, it says eight days later, they got back together. So over the course of that week, Thomas is hearing the stories and the accounts, but he was determined in his heart to not believe unless he saw Christ with his own eyes. Well, lo and behold, eight days later, God in his mercy gives Thomas that exact opportunity. And he's able to actually touch the risen body of Jesus, to, to face the irrefutable evidence that Christ is alive. And I think it's a great picture of how God comes down to us even in our doubts. That we don't have to bring this morning to God perfect, unquestioning faith. That if we're honest, the journey of the Christian life is a lot like that of Thomas. We've heard the gospel. We've heard the good news. We're hearing it maybe for the first time today or maybe the hundredth time. And we have questions and we have concerns and we even have doubts that life sometimes brings our way. But the beauty of this here is that Jesus doesn't wait for Thomas to have this perfect, unflinching, unquestioning faith before he will come and reveal himself to him, before he will come and love him and condescend to his level, but rather he accepts him as he is. That's a great picture for the church as well, that you can come this morning with your doubts. You can come this morning with a, a flinching faith, but God is still there to hear you. God is still there to love you. God welcomes you, doubts and all, questions and all, into the open arms of his mercy and his goodness and his salvation. And unlike Thomas, who only had a week perhaps, we have 2,000 years of Christian witness, of Christian testimony. We have the most widely attested, historically verifiable ancient literature in the history of the world, the Bible. We have 2,000 years to hear of Christ's works among us, of his life, so that our faith can eventually be bolstered and find itself gripping what Christ has done, like we see Thomas here do in the text. And in a moment, we'll have a, the opportunity to come to the Lord's table. And as we celebrate communion, we have the opportunity again to have our faith bolstered, to hold in our hands a visible reminder of what Christ has done. And I want to encourage you to see it as that, that as surely in a moment as you hold that bread in your hands, and as surely in a moment as you taste that juice, know for certain that whoever you are, whether you are a runner, a weeper, or a doubter, that God has come for you, that God has made a way for you through the perfect life, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of his son Jesus from the grave. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do thank you for your great gift to us, your amazing grace to us. We thank you that we can celebrate and cherish and remember that great sacrifice for our salvation that your son lived that perfect life, died the atoning death, and was raised for our salvation, for our justification. Oh God, may we leave here this morning having been reminded again of that great, great love that is ours. That as we sung a moment ago, that paradise has been opened indeed for us who trust in that sacrifice of Christ by faith and faith alone. So we thank you and praise you again in Jesus' name. Amen.